We take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, the book of Acts, chapter 1. We're going to read the fullest account in the scriptures here of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1, and we'll read the first 14 verses of the chapter. The book of Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote the gospel account of, of Jesus' ministry. And uh, Luke references that here immediately in the first verse and makes a distinction here between the work that Christ began to do, and that was during the gospel, and then the book of Acts will be the work that Christ continues to do, and that's important for us in understanding the ascension as well. So the book of Acts is really the the continuation of the work of Christ from his ascended place in heaven. And so the, the book begins with the ascension. Acts chapter 1, we'll read the first 14 verses. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, and the word passion means suffering, He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And that's an interesting uh, phrase because that's the way the book of Acts ends as well, that Paul preached the things pertaining to the kingdom of God during his imprisonment in Rome. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time again restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up, into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren." One other passage that I want to read, and that's in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And just from verses 5 through 7. John 16, verse 5. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you... Ask of me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him 
unto you. We read that far in the scriptures, and this morning we consider together Lord's Day 18 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and this is on pages 10 and 11 in the back of the Psalters. Lord's Day 18, questions 46 through 49. And let's uh, read this as we sometimes would read in order to underline or to highlight the, the key things in the Lord's Day. And so as we read it, I want to point to a couple of things. How dost thou understand these words? He ascended into heaven, that Christ in the presence, in the sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven and that he continues there for our interest. We should underline those words. He continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. Then the next two questions deal with a controversy at the time of the Reformation between the Reformed and the Lutherans over the presence of Christ in the Supper. Really, Indirectly, but they lay the foundation for the proper understanding of the spiritual presence of Christ in the Supper. So question 47, is not Christ then with us to the end of the world as he promised? Christ is very or truly man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth, but with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. And then we could underline that again, too, his perpetual presence. He is at no time absent from us. Question 48, but if his human nature is not present wherever his Godhead is, are not these two natures in Christ separated from one another? And the answer, not at all, for since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed, and yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it. Question 49, of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? And the word advantage there is the key to this answer. First, that he is our advocate, there's the first advantage, in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge, that he as the head will take up to himself us, his members. And the word pledge is important there. And then thirdly, that he sends us his Spirit as an earnest, and that's almost a synonym with the word pledge, by whose power... We seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and not things on earth. Beloved, it's my work as a preacher of the gospel to point you to Jesus Christ. And to point you to especially the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we've gone through the catechism recently, that's what we've done. We have looked at the names of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and then we've examined the work of Jesus Christ. Not just the things that happened to him, but the things that he did, his work. And so he was born, he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he took on himself in that a human nature. He suffered. It wasn't only that they inflicted pain upon him, but he suffered. He died. It wasn't only that he was killed, but he laid down his life. He rose again. It wasn't only that he was raised from the dead, but he, he arose because he had that power to come out of the grave. And now this morning, he ascended into heaven. It wasn't just that he was taken up, but he ascended into heaven. These are the different aspects of the saving work of Jesus Christ, and we confess them not only, but we believe them. We confess them, that is, we believe the reality of them, but we also believe them in this way that we depend on the work of Jesus Christ for 
our salvation. So this morning as we look at the ascension of Jesus Christ, I direct your attention and your faith to another important aspect of the work of our Savior for us. Perhaps this is one of the aspects of the work of Jesus Christ that we don't think about very often. We do celebrate Christmas and we think about his incarnation and birth. We do celebrate Good Friday and Easter and we think about his suffering and his death and the atonement. We do in our preaching emphasize the cross of Jesus Christ and you are called to believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. But this morning we look at the ascension of Jesus Christ and we say together in the Apostles' Creed not only that it happened, but I believe that he ascended into heaven. And he did that for our profit. He continues in heaven for our profit. And there is in his ascension great blessing and great benefit for us. And what I want to do this morning is show you how how important of a subject this is in Scripture, the ascension of Jesus Christ, and then speak of the bounties and the blessings that come to us from the ascension of the Savior. So let's consider this morning the Savior's ascension into heaven. Notice three things with me. First, the, the fact or the reality, as that's set forth in Scripture. Then second, the necessity. Why was it necessary that Jesus ascended to heaven? And then we think of the words that we read in John 16 when the disciples were sad and Jesus said, it's expedient for you that I go away. And then third, we want to look at the benefits or the advantage of that for us as that's explained here in the last question and answer of the Lord's Day. So we confess this morning the reality of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The third day, he, or or not the third day, he ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven. That's something that really happened. And that's something that all of Scripture speaks to. And so we can think of the Old Testament, and we can think especially of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. And on the great day of atonement in the Old Testament, there was an event that took place every year on the tenth day of the seventh month, which was typical, which made the people of God think of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And that was that on the great day of atonement, the high priest went in to the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and later the temple with the names of God's people on him, with the cause of the sacrifice to burn incense before God and to make intercession for the people there in the presence of God before the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And that tells us that Jesus Christ would ascend into heaven. This is one of the great themes in the book of uh, Hebrews, and I just want to read a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 9 that point to this. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, heaven is the true tabernacle, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That was the ascension of Jesus Christ, the high priest going into the presence of God for us. So this was represented in the types and in the worship and in the repeated ceremonies of the Old Testament. Christ would ascend into heaven, but is also prophesied in the Old Testament. And we've been singing psalms about that this morning. Lord, thou hast ascended on high in might to reign. But there's this beautiful connection between one of those psalms and the New Testament. And that's Psalm 68 and verse 18. Psalm 68 and verse 18. And you recognize this language in the New Testament. Psalm 68, verse 18, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men. And the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4 says that Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, distributes gifts in the church. 
And there's victory then. This is, this is the king returning from uh, a warfare with victory. And there's a victory uh, procession. That was what was going on in Psalm 68. David ascending up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem with the ark. Because the Jebusites had been defeated. And now the land of Canaan was in the possession of Israel. And the house of God would be established in Jerusalem. And from there he would rule. And and on that day, David did distribute great gifts and those great feasting. And all of that's fulfilled in the ascension of Jesus Christ. He went victorious into heaven. And from there he distributes gifts in the church. And so this is something that Jesus Christ anticipated himself. You remember that when Mary came to him in the garden, he said, "'Touch me not.'" For I am not yet ascended to my Father. He anticipated the ascension. And that's what he's repeatedly talking about to his disciples when he says, I go away, I go away. He's speaking of the glory of the ascension. And this was also confirmed by the angels in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The disciples watched Jesus ascend from them and was hidden by a cloud. And you remember when something similar happened to Elijah in the Old Testament, the young men wanted to go out and find him. Perhaps he was dropped here in the mountains or somewhere else in the trees, and they wanted to go find him. And perhaps that was on the disciples' mind now. Well, what happened to him? Where did he fall? And so the angels come to them and confirm to them, This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. So it was affirmed by the angels, and then it was preached by the apostles. It was central to the message of the apostles. We already referenced Ephesians chapter 4, but there are many other places in both the book of Acts and in the epistles that reference the ascension of Jesus Christ. Think, for example, of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And that's speaking of this, this high priest who has gone into heaven. And so, so the Bible has much to say about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the account of it, as we read it in Acts chapter 1, and it's recorded also in Luke chapter 24 and Mark chapter 16, when we look at the account of it in Scripture, what's set before us is the reality of it from an earthly point of view. Christ was taken up from the earth in the presence of his disciples. That's the, the language of the catechism. This is a reality. This is what we confess. And when Jesus was physically removed from his disciples and a cloud covered him, at that moment, in his human nature, he assumed a a new position in heaven. And so the Scriptures also talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ, not just from that earthly perspective, where did he go? But they look at it from a heavenly perspective. And so especially in the record of that, you find that both in Luke and in, and in Mark, we read of why he ascended or to where he ascended. So this is Luke uh, chapter 24. It came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Mark expands on that this way. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Heaven received him. And that was a a great moment of coronation. That is, at that moment he was crowned and exalted and seated at God's right hand to be king and lord and ruler over all things. So that, as Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, He was set far above all principalities and powers and dominions. And there's a beautiful prophecy in the Old Testament that points to that. Daniel chapter 7. This is one of Daniel's visions. 
And he says in Daniel 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And you, you have this vision here almost as though Daniel is seated behind the throne or next to the throne of God, and he sees Christ, from a heavenly point of view, ascending and coming near to the throne of God. And then we read this in Daniel 7, verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So we read the accounts in the gospel from an earthly perspective. Jesus was taken up from them. But at that moment, something amazing and glorious took place in heaven. And it was that the Son of Man, that is the Savior in his human nature, God in the flesh, was received into the presence of God and given this exalted position of dominion. Now, as we see in this Lord's Day, it's important that we understand what happened to Jesus and especially what happened to the human nature of Jesus at the moment of the ascension. That's because there's confusion about the natures of Jesus Christ in the Lutheran teaching concerning the presence of Jesus Christ in the sacrament. And the confusion is this, that Christ in his human nature at the moment of his ascension, that is, in his glorification, in his human nature received divine characteristics so that his human nature becomes omnipresent and without limitation. And the Catechism answers that carefully by teaching us that the ascension did not change the human nature of Jesus Christ, that he retains his human nature and the characteristics and the limitations of that human nature, that what changed in the ascension was the location of his human nature. He changed places in the ascension. He was taken up from earth into heaven. And that's the teaching of Jesus himself in John 16, verse 7, which we read together, that he would go away and he would go to the Father. It's expedient, he says, for you that I go away. He means that in his human nature, he would leave them. And he would leave them because this was necessary and this was going to be better for them as a church. And that's the point of the whole dispute about the presence of Jesus Christ at the sacrament. What value is it that Christ is physically present? What value is it that he is there for everyone in the bread and wine? No, Christ is present with his church in a much greater way, and that is by the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people. And it's interesting, as you even think about the, uh, the, the Lord's Supper form, it says this, that when we take the bread and wine, we lift our hearts on high to Jesus Christ who sits at God's right hand. And that's really the way we are to live our lives in the presence of the Holy Spirit too. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. There are two truths here that the Catechism sets forth to explain this. And one of them is the, what we call the hypostatic union. That is the union of the two natures of Christ, divine and human, in the one person. And the point is this, and the Catechism explains it this way, that when Christ ascended to heaven, the divine nature and the human were never separated from each other. And they never can be separated from each other but the divine nature supersedes the limitations of the human nature. So Christ's body, not physical now, but spiritual, is a real body. And that body has limitations. He's limited to the location. 
But in his divine nature, he is everywhere present. So you have that first, the, the hypostatic union of the two natures in the one person. But then there's another truth that's really set before us here, and that's that the persons of the Godhead can never be separated from each other. And they, they, there's an indwelling in the Godhead. So that where the Spirit is, there the Son is. And that was true of the ministry of Jesus Christ as well. They say, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because we are one. And that's important to remember with the presence of Christ at the sacrament. If the Holy Spirit is with us, then Christ is with us. We don't have to argue over whether a piece of bread or wine... And the words of Jesus, this is my body, are literal? No, he's with us. He's with us by the Spirit. And that's the point of the ascension of Jesus Christ too, and the promises that he gives concerning his presence. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. And then he left them physically. And of course, it's his spiritual presence. And the pouring out of the Spirit is Christ himself coming to his people and the church. So this is the ascension of Jesus Christ, a permanent, history-long change in place for Christ in his glorified human nature so that physically he's absent from us, but that doesn't mean he's gone from us. No, he's here with us in a better way in the Spirit. And that's summed in the words of Jesus to his disciples when they're sad in John 16, verse 7, when he says, it is expedient for you that I go away. That word expedient really means two things. It means it is better for you. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I stay here, something won't happen that should happen for you. So it's Expedient, better for you that I go away. And then also necessary. It's necessary that I go away. And we want to think about that this morning by, by pointing to seven things that show us the necessity of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Why was it necessary that Jesus ascend into heaven? And as we think about these things, we'll understand this is better. This is far better for us as a church than that he would have remained here on earth. So at least seven reasons. The first reason is this, that Jesus ascended into heaven because he had finished the work that he came to do on earth. He finished the work that he came to do on earth. His work began in heaven and his work continues in heaven. There was a work that he had to do here on the earth and he came and he did that and he said in his prayer, John 17, verses 4 and 11, immediately before going to the cross, he says, Father, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do and I come to thee, Holy Father. And he's speaking there before he goes to the cross of what he would accomplish on the cross and then when his work was finished here on earth, he would Go to heaven. So Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He finished his work here. Isn't that what he exclaimed on the cross towards the end of the darkness? It is finished. And isn't that why he proclaimed, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He came to do a work and that work was finished. And so he ascended into heaven. It really teaches us the, the completeness of our salvation. What was that work? Well, that work was in part his obedience to the will of God and his obedience to the commandments of God, a perfect obedience that's given to us. But it was especially this, his suffering in which he bore the wrath of God and the curse of God. In his ascension, he's saying to us, that's finished. So we, we should think about the ascension of Jesus Christ from that point of view. 
Then second, Jesus ascended into heaven so that he might continue his work for us. He, as it were, had another phase of work to do. And there are different elements to that. The first is this, his high priestly work. That was the that was the work that he had to continue. And this takes us back again to, to the Old Testament type. On the great day of atonement, the priest would make sacrifice, and there would be a, a picture and a type in that of the atoning blood of the sacrifice to forgive the sins of the people, looking ahead to the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ, But that wasn't the end of the priest's work. Then the priest went into the sanctuary in order to make intercession for the people by burning incense before God. And that's what Christ has done now. He is our heavenly high priest who continues his work by standing in the presence of God as our advocate and our mediator and making intercession for us. So, He went on to the next phase of his work. That's why he had to ascend into heaven. And that helps us to understand the words, it is expedient for you that I go away. It's necessary and it's better. And the whole book of Acts is all about that, how Christ from heaven continued his work and how this was so beneficial for the church of Jesus Christ on earth. But then there's another aspect to the work that he continues to do, and it's expressed by Jesus in John 14, verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. And this is the the picture of a, a husband or a bridegroom building a home so that when he marries his bride, he can bring her to that home with himself. Heaven is a wonderful home described by Jesus in that same passage as the house of many mansions in which he's preparing a place for every one of his own. And it's our longing and our hope to be there. But it's not only our desire, it's also the desire of Jesus Christ to to take us there. And so he's preparing this home in heaven for us with this prayer and this desire, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. And the Bible tells us that when we see the glory of Jesus Christ, we'll be transformed in a moment into the glory of Jesus Christ. That's his desire. That's what he's doing. Now how exactly he prepares a place for us in heaven is in some ways a mystery. But that's the beauty of it, isn't it? It's going to be a place where we dwell with him as his bride to eternity in bliss. And he today is getting ready that place for his bride. So it's expedient, it's better for you that I go away. And then... There's this as well, and probably this is the, the key thing. Certainly it is in John 16, verse 7. It is expedient for you that I go away so that the Comforter might come, the Holy Spirit. And that word Comforter is very important. It, it has the idea of helper, someone who comes alongside of you to assist you, to, as it were, put his arms around you or under you to carry you. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be the strength of the church. And it's important, it's necessary, it's expedient for me to go away so that that can happen. And then think of all the work of the Holy Spirit. We could preach a a very long sermon, a a very long series of sermons on, on the work of the Holy Spirit. Just think, for example, of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the signs of Pentecost and the meaning of those signs, the the gospel being preached in different languages to the ends of the earth, the, the cleansing power of the Spirit as fire, the spreading power of the Spirit as wind and His mysterious work. And then think of all the, the ways in which the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit shows itself, 
the fruit of it. Jesus says you, you, with, of wind you can hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. But it's by the fruit of the Spirit that you know the work Spirit. So think of the, the fruit in the life of regeneration. We're given new life. Our minds are spiritually illumined to understand spiritual realities, eternal realities, the gospel, the truth about ourselves and our sin. And then the Spirit works out that fruit in our lives. Think of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, and so on. Well, think of the, the work of the Spirit in the church, bringing unity in the church, or the work of the Spirit in the spread of the gospel as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth and the Spirit goes before it and with it, turning hearts from blindness to faith. Or even think of this, the Spirit's book. And you start to understand as you think about all the different ways in which the Spirit works, what Jesus means when he says it's expedient, it's necessary, it's better for you that I go away. He ascended so that he might send the Holy Spirit. And so he says to his disciples immediately before his ascension, as we read it in Acts chapter 1, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard of me. You've been baptized with water. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's why he says to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 12, that he would do greater things, greater things through them. What does he mean by greater things? Well, he means that his work after his ascension into heaven would, would be taken, as it were, to to a whole new level. And the work of Jesus Christ after his ascension in the earth and in the gospel would be greater than anything that anyone witnessed during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Think of his earthly ministry. It was localized. It was right there in Palestine. But then today, think of the mystical body, the universal church of Jesus Christ. Not a localized body, but a universal spiritual body. Many members. Or think of Jesus while he was here on the earth ministering and teaching in one place and, and with limitations of his human nature. So that he became tired and he had to go apart and rest a while with his disciples. He needed to pray for strength to continue his work. And then think of all the ways that through the Spirit, gifts have been given to the church today so that Christ is able to work in the power of the gospel all over the world and turn millions of souls from darkness to him. That's the gospel preaching that extends to the ends of the earth. And it's a greater work that he does also in you and through you. As you give testimony and witness to the gospel, isn't that marvelous to think of the, the expedience, the profit, the necessity of his ascension so that you and I could be instruments of the gospel? And then, and this is part of the point that Jesus makes in John 16, verse 7, he had to go away so that the disciples and the church might enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ in a different and a better way. The disciples were sad that he would be physically, bodily, leaving them. But he says, I'll be with you to the end of the world. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And it's the ascension of Jesus Christ that makes this possible. It's actually his bodily ascension into heaven that makes his richer presence with us till the end of the world, a possibility. And so we can think of the way that's explained for us in Scripture. The shepherd. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And he means by that, that in his power and his strength, he's present with every one of his own, in all their joys and sorrows and temptations, and finally through the dark passage of death, to bring them to glory. And that's not just mystical, religious talk, but there's a real strength in the presence of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Though I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. And then there's one more reason that it was necessary that he ascended to heaven. And that's pointed to here in the Catechism too. And it's this, that his ascension is a testimony of his return. And his ascension tells us how he's going to come again. On the Mount of Olives was a small group who watched him physically ascend into heaven till a cloud covered him from their sight. And then the angels came and they said, well, he's going to come in like manner as you've seen him go. And that was the teaching of Jesus himself, that the Son of Man will appear on the clouds of heaven, and every eye will see him. And what the disciples saw, we will see in reverse. Not the Savior going, but the Savior bodily returning. And Jesus tells us that we should be looking for this. We should be anticipating this. You, you, you have the, the, the longing gaze of the disciples described in Acts chapter 1 when the angels came to them. And Jesus is saying, well, you should have a longing gaze. A longing gaze for my return. There the angels had to come and say to the disciples, go to Jerusalem, listen to the Savior, get on with your work, but don't ever take your eyes off Jesus. And that's really what we're thinking about this morning and what's being declared to you. Keep your eyes on the ascended Jesus Christ who's coming again from heaven. Don't lose sight of him. And isn't that the Christian life? We run the race looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So this morning, as... as We've been, I'll say, saturated in a biblical understanding of the ascension and the significance, the reality and significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Let's live our lives by faith, looking to Him. Now, each of the reasons for the ascension of Jesus Christ also point to benefits for us and haven't our souls this morning already been filled with understanding why it's better for us that Christ has gone to heaven? But the Catechism identifies three specific advantages or benefits from the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the first is this, that Christ is busy in heaven on our behalf. And there are two aspects to his work that are pointed to. First, he's our advocate, and then he's our intercessor. Those are similar ideas, but a little different to each other. The word advocate really has a legal idea to it. It's, uh, it's the idea of a lawyer pleading the innocence of his client. And this is what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And now this has to do with your and my life in the present. If any man sin, he doesn't mean if you do, you might not, but he means when you do, when you sin. Beloved, when you sin, when you come to the end of the day and you know your sin, when you're overwhelmed with the guilt and a sense of your guilt before God, the Bible's telling us then we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Even though all our sins were paid 
that the cross, the guilt of them, continues to accumulate as we sin and continues to come into our consciousness and, and as it were, sweep over us again and again. When we sin, the Bible says, we have the righteous one standing in the presence of God as our advocate. So he's our advocate, and that's our, our comfort and our consolation that, that by his pleading for us, as the high priest did as he brought the blood and the coals into the sanctuary, that by his pleading for us, he turns the wrath of God away so that God's favor and God's grace shines upon us and we can come with confidence and with assurance, with boldness to the throne of grace. Because we have a God of mercy. So that's our advocate. But then he's also our intercessor. And here, it's, it's more, instead of bringing us to God, it's bringing blessings from God to us. And you can perhaps think here of a, a representative in government. They, they go away from the area that they represent to the parliament house, wherever that is. And they go there in order to secure things so that, that they can bring them back to the community that they represent. And Christ is our intercessor in heaven, aware of our every need, a sympathetic high priest who's lived our lives, who's suffered our sufferings, who's been tempted in all points like as we are, and knowing exactly our need. He brings those blessings from God to us in his ascension. And so we can come to him in prayer with our needs, and we can be sure not only that he'll hear our needs, but that as our intercessor, he'll go above and beyond what we ask in prayer. He's our advocate and intercessor, living, working, representing in God's presence, us and our needs for our blessing. Then the second benefit that is mentioned here is that we have our flesh in heaven. And what that means is this, that the human nature in which we are born, the human nature in which we are created, the human nature in which we live here on the earth, which belongs to this physical world, has actually been transformed so that it can live in the spiritual presence of God. Of course, part of what's needed for that is the cleansing of our nature from sin. But Christ is perfect, and Christ in his resurrection was glorified so that his human nature was transformed from being physical and earthly to being spiritual and heavenly. And the Bible tells us that not only is he going to return in that human nature to earth so that we'll see him coming on the clouds of heaven, but when he does that, we are going to be taken with him into glory. And he's not only the first fruits of them that slept risen from the grave, but he's the first fruits of humanity in heaven. So that not only is my soul going to be glorified, but in my flesh shall I see God. A part of us, we could say, is already in heaven. Our life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians chapter 3 says. And that really points us to the third benefit, and that is not only that a part of us is in heaven, but a part of heaven is in us. And so the third advantage and benefit is that he sends his Holy Spirit as an earnest, an earnest. An earnest is a pledge or a proof or a promise or a down payment. You buy a house and you make an offer and they want an earnest. It may only be a very small amount of money, but it guarantees that the rest will follow. You make a pledge. 
And Christ gives us the Holy Spirit as an earnest, and with that earnest, that I'll say little bit of heaven again, in us, we long for and we live for heaven. He set our heart on things above where Christ is at the right hand of the majesty on high. And you know what that does in your life? Creates attention, doesn't it? You long to be with the Savior. You long to be like the Savior. And that works out in, in the Christian life this way, that this longing creates a struggle, which is again our pilgrimage and our running of this race and our looking to Jesus the author and the finisher. And you know that struggle, don't you? The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. And you know what that struggle is? It's an evidence that this earth is not our home. That the pleasures of this earth are not our final satisfaction. That we want what the Savior has promised to give us in glory. So this morning, we've just thought about different dimensions of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Probably something that we don't think about as often as we should, but it defines who we are, doesn't it? The ascension of Christ defines who we are. It helps us here in the struggles of this life. It gives us a hope beyond this life. It tells us that Christ is the King who rules over all things and that He's coming again. It, it means that we have the Spirit and that we have spiritual desires and understandings and unity, union with Christ and a place in His body. And we have the riches of His promises in the Scripture. All because Jesus is ascended into heaven. Amen. Father, we're grateful for the work of the Savior. Also His work as He ascended into heaven. 